0: Hi, I'm Tyra G., your host of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal listeners. Yes, you, fearsome and generous, humble and honest, in pursuit of new possibilities and purpose. Every week, we meet at this table to experience, inspire, educate, encourage, and empower each other through our joys and our lessons learned. We share topics that tradition tells us there's some things we just don't talk about. But here, we live beyond both the judgment and the wreckage. We share some aha moments and stories that have been left in our pockets for way too long. Every week, we start right where we are. Although many of your voices will speak light into darkness, there is no insignificant person around this table. However... You must come dressed in your inner awesome, believing that impossible is merely a word to describe the degree of difficulty. You're listening to Radio Fairfax, Fairfax, Virginia. Cablecast on Cox and Verizon Files, Channel 37. And Comcast, Channel 27 in Reston. And webcasts worldwide on the internet at www.radiofairfax.org. Every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Should you miss us, no worries. You can hear our archive shows wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you feel like calling me online, connecting with me, it's easy. Email me at tyra, tyragarlington.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. And thank you, Courtney Nero, for composing and performing our. Frankly speaking, theme and naming it, I'm listening. This week, we continue celebrating phenomenal women who walk into this space through many, many doors. They willingly share their stories authentically and often vulnerably to pay forward what they have learned, and to celebrate each other. Thank you, ladies. As a result of the women who have agreed to join me at this table, many friendships, although virtual, have been formed. To set a common thought space today, consider the following quote from our favorite coach, one of them, I should say, Yana Vonsant, in her 2000 book, Until Today. I want you to listen for a twist all of you phenomenal women and phenomenal women in the making. And I quote, Life is always accommodating my request. Life will accommodate you in any way that you choose. Life is always listening for the silent request of your heart and mind. Life is always surveying the landscape of your heart, gathering the bits and pieces of the emotions buried there. Life is always monitoring the activity of your tongue, checking for ruins and sacred elements. Life knows that your mind, your heart, and your mouth will produce the request of your consciousness, even when you are most unaware of it. Life can be an open book through which you can learn about great mysteries and wonders, or life can be mysterious and frightening through which you fear to tread. Or life can be a basket into which you can place your treasures, in which you can carry abundant blessings. Or life can be a locked trunk from which you can retrieve or receive nothing. Life can be a journey or a struggle, a paradise or a prison, a calm sea or a turbulent ocean. It's all up to you. Life will accommodate whatever you choose, exactly the way you choose, and whether or not you believe it, what you have in your life right now is a function of your own request. Some of those requests you've made openly, others you have made silently. doesn't matter. Life is very accommodating, and the minute your requests change, your life will follow suit. Till today, you may have realized that life is answering your request. You may not have believed that you had the power and the right to ask for more than you already have right now. But just for today, be devoted to creating a life, of positive, joyful request. Create them first in your mind, next, create them in your heart. Then speak to them, or speak them into existence. Be sure to remember what you've created. If it doesn't show up, check your counter request. Repeat after me, today I am devoted to creating and requesting what I truly desire to experience in life. I'm ending quote here. Today you're going miss- to meet Miss Adrienne Marie, a writer, an activist, and facilitator who has spoken into her mind and into her how out- and outcomes such a refreshing outlook of expressions, which she will share with Krista Tippett. On NPR Podcasts, On Being. On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's Sharing Spiritual Heritage Report asks, how will we reimagine our spiritual infrastructure for today's time? Learn more at Fetzer.org.
1: What a time to be alive, Adrian Marie Brown has written. Right now, we are in a fast river together. Every day, there are changes that seemed unimaginable until they occurred. Adrian Marie Brown and others use many words and phrases to describe what she does, who she is, a student of complexity, a student of change and of how groups change together, a scholar of belonging, a scholar of magic. She grew up loving science fiction and thought we'd be driving flying cars by now, and yet has found in speculative fiction the transformative force of vision and imagination that might in fact save us. Our younger listeners have asked to hear Adrienne Marie Brown's voice on On Being, and here she is as On Being enters its own time of evolution. This conversation shines a light on an emerging ecosystem in our world over against the drumbeat of what is fractured and breaking. Working with the complex fullness of reality and cultivating old and new ways of seeing to move towards a transformative wholeness of living. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Adrienne Marie Brown is the author of several books which are shaping new generations, among them Emergent Strategy, Pleasure Activism, Octavia's Brood, and We Will Not Cancel Us. She is the writer in residence at the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute. She lived for many years in Detroit and now lives in Durham, North Carolina, where she was as we spoke. Hi there. Hi, how are you? I'm good. It's Krista. I'm so happy to meet you. So honored it's to be so here. It's so good to
2: meet you, Krista. <laughs> your voice has been in my ear. Oh,
1: that means a lot. Yes. Um, I would love to ask you this. I'm so curious, actually, to ask you this question that I've asked so many people. Mm-hmm. Um, how you would start to speak about what the spiritual background of your childhood was? however you would describe that um, looking back mm-hmm. now? Hmm. Yes.
2: I love my spiritual childhood, actually. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think the big picture way to think about it maybe is like I was born into a household that was at the transition point, like on the horizon between like an evangelical Christianity that was very obligatory. Yeah. And very kind of shame and judgment, you know, God is going to punish you and that kind of religiosity of of spiritual practice. But we were at the horizon to a more direct and kind of action-based, practice-based mm. spirituality. Mm. And my parents were an interracial marriage in the seventies, mid seventies. Yeah. And then Your so they kind
1: of mother was white and her father yes, was black. Mother and white, father black Carolina. Yeah,
2: and met in South Carolina, fell in love mm-hmm. at Clemson university. And, um, but they were making a whole world right. unto themselves. And right. so we went to church. My dad was in the military and we were often in non-denominational churches on the base, but we were always really encouraged to think and to ask questions we were taken out into nature, you know, we, like my parents love to take us to parks and mm. take us to the mountains and to, you know, show us like, look at the world. Like that's the, like, if I was going to say, what are the most persistent spiritual practices? It was probably gratitude and compassion. We mm. were always like, wow, <laughs> we get to be here. Wow. Like mm. just be amazed by this world and travel and be curious and see it all. And then, you know, when people would mistreat us, Um, Or when we would encounter, you know, intense racism and other things, there was so much, there was a compassion, you know, of just like, Uh oh, that's on them, (laughs) you know, Uh like, that's, they're struggling, you know, they're struggling, but we're safe, we love each other, we're good, you know.
1: Uh And um, Octavia Butler, the science fiction writer, is such an influence Um, Mm -hmm. on you. You know, some people will have read her, some won't. But so just knowing that, you know, talk a little bit about what she worked in you.
2: Yeah. So, you know, she was a science fiction writer. And at the time that she was writing, you know, she would always be like, I'm kind of the only one, (laughs) you know, the first of what she was a black woman writing science fiction. And when I read her work, I think what opened up in me was all this possibility. So until reading that, I had been reading like Philip K. Dick and all these other sci-fi. I loved it. You know, mm-hmm. I love Star Trek. I love Star Wars. But then Octavia, I open up her books and the protagonist is a black girl and, and both the blackness and the the youth matter mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. She was writing people who were 15 years old and who already had a sense of destiny and a sense of. The world needs to change, and I'm going to be a part of that. And she was very solution-oriented in her writing. She was very, like, practical in her writing. She wrote so many stories where the main message was, like, change is coming. Right. You can be prepared for it, and you can, you don't have to be a victim of it. You can actually shape it. So she opened all of that up for me, and I kept returning to the work over and over again, she also really opened up that you can look to nature as a teacher, Um, that like the natural world is up to a lot of things and we are natural. And so anything that's happening out there can happen in us (laughs) and we can coexist and we can be symbiotic and we can collaborate. Um, And her disappointment in humanity also was really comforting to me. (laughs) You know, she was just like, wow, like we have this amazing, awesome earth. And we we're just fumbling the bag because we're so obsessed with using our intelligence to enact hierarchies over each other. Right. And I was like, she gets me.
1: <laughs> she, she sees what mm. I see. <laughs> you know? There's this passage from the parable of the sower, mm. the book of the living, verse 19. Um, I've seen you kind of work with the words, with the language, and the ideas that are at the core of your work, also kind of kind of emergent from this passage, right? And so all successful life is, and I just love that framing, right? All successful life. Mm-hmm. It's what could we be moving towards, right? Yes. How does successful life function? Is adaptable, opportunistic, tenacious, interconnected, fecund, understand this, use it, shape God. Yes. It feels to me like, and you sometimes speak about, what is it you say, that visionary fiction, right, is is a core principle in your work. And it seems to me that, I mean, what you're getting at there is a core value of imagination and understanding the power of imagination in making the world and remaking the world. Yeah. Well, you know,
2: I want to shout out my friend Walida Imarisha, who named Visionary Fiction, Mm -hmm. and I was obsessing over Octavia, and she was also, (laughs) and we found each other, and we we wrote, um, pulled together this anthology called Octavia's Brood, and in that process, I started the work of emergent strategy, you know, started to listen to what is up with the natural world what can it teach us about how to be humans and how to be humans in a better relationship with each other and what i realized is it is the work of radical imagination to do so but also that we're living inside of imaginations that other people <laughs> told us were true yeah. and told us we're like this is how the world is and i always uplift my friend terry marshall um, he was the first person to say this to me that we're in an imagination battle which just blew my mind. And I I think about it often that we live in this abundant world and we've been told it's scarce, Mm -hmm. right? And then we're given all these stories of scarcity. So, so much of the work for me of radical imagination is like, what does it look like to imagine beyond the constructs? What does it look like to imagine a future where we all get to be there, um, not causing harm to each other and experiencing abundance?
1: You've even spoken about that organizing um, can be treated like time travel. Yes. Say some more about that. What does that mean? You know, it's
2: like we are reaching into the future. Mm -hmm. We are trying to project what we can imagine into the future. And organizing is a way of saying, like, we're going to put our hands directly on the future. But it's also time traveling backwards, you know. So much of, of organizing is looking back at what did our ancestors try What did they learn? What were they up to? What was Harriet Tubman doing? (laughs) You know, I'm obsessed with Harriet Tubman. (laughs) I'm obsessed with like, what was it like to walk in her shoes and to face her fears, you know? So I always want to reach back and be like, okay, well, now what is the Harriet Tubman activity to do in this time? And what does Harriet Tubman up to in 2063
1: yeah. Because there's always some place that needs um, justice and liberation. You know, a minute ago, you were talking to me about your childhood, and you said your parents um, having an interracial marriage in the 70s, they were they were making a world that didn't exist. Yes. And that's what visionary fiction does. That's what fiction does. And, and I hear you saying that's what organizing does.
2: Yeah. And, you know, there's a way, just like I think my parents ran into, it's like, you have to bring that imagination into relationship with reality. Yeah. And, and that can be devastating, you know, being with what is and Mm -hmm. then figuring out how do we make more possible?
1: Yeah. You know, I feel like your work and your writing, your activism and really the conversation, the wider ecosystem of conversation and action and, change and imagination that you're part of is mm. um, it's there's a there's a vocabulary there's really there's really a lexicon that's being unfolded and it's mm. you know words and ideas and practices and and so I think you know one of the things I want to do in this short time we have is to kind of just just kind of lay some of that out and I so obviously mm. emergent strategy is at the core of it Talk about what it means to put those words together, emergence mm-hmm. and strategy.
2: I, lo- I love talking about this. Okay. <laughs> I'm like, maybe I'll never tire of it. But I'll also try to be brief. So the word emergence, the definition I work with comes from Nick Obolinsky. And it's emergence is the way complex systems and patterns arise out of relatively simple interactions. So birds flapping their wings, birds in a flock together is a relatively simple interaction. Um, But birds all doing that together and avoiding predation can become the most complex, gorgeous patterns of murmurations, migration, survival, right? Mm. So we're all emergent beings. Humans are an emergent species amongst emergent species. And the strategy part comes in, you know, I think what we mean by strategic is able to adapt to changing conditions while still moving towards our our vision of freedom and the future and being in that practice. So that's what emergent strategy is. It's like, how do we get in a right relationship with change that allows us to harness and shape things um, towards community, towards liberation, towards justice?
1: Yeah, I was looking on the website of the Emergent Strategy Ideation Institute, and that notion of, um, you know, acknowledging the real power of change and, mm-hmm. and embracing finding practices and responses, visions and plans that embrace complexity, interdependence, yeah. and transformation, and also noting that this strategy has been observed from the natural world yes. and is both ancient and constant. So, you know, even yeah. in this short conversation you and I have had, you. Um, you're always locating yourself within, right, within an ecosystem of teachers yes. and role yes. models and, uh, and language. And that, I mean, so your teachers also um, are in the natural world. They are mushrooms Absolutely. and dandelions. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, so talk to me about the strategic <laughs> intelligence of mushrooms. So mushrooms, I feel like they're
2: our great detoxer. Okay. Yeah. They're the ones who understand that nothing needs to be wasted, that everything can be used in some way. We just have to understand what it is. And I often think about this when it comes to our abolition conversations and our justice conversations, that mushrooms are, are like, this is food if we can find a way to use it. This could be nourishment. And when something breaks down in our communities, it's actually a moment usually when something needs nourishing or when something is dead, when something is done, it's complete, and it needs to be processed back into the whole.
1: Can you think of just an example, just like a situation? Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: So in movement spaces, you know, I worked as a facilitator for 25 years, so one of the things I saw all the time is an organization would have kind of served its purpose or Mm -hmm. served the initial purpose it came into existence for, and what would have been great and possible was to just sunset the organization right yeah. just be like great we did a good job let's call it let's learn what we need to learn and move on and instead of doing that the organization was like no no we need to persist so let's change our mission right we'll update our mission and here's what the ph- philanthropy is willing to fund and they get contorted but we we often forget that it's like oh now it's time to compost this and process right. it, and see where else the resources need to flow.
1: Oh, and I think what you're describing is true of all kinds of organizations, right? It's a it's yes. a cultural it's a cultural kind of bias and sensibility that we have that if something dies, yes, or ends, but that's bad. That it's failure. Exactly. Um, this exactly. is this is coming to me as uh, <laughs> this is feeling very <laughs> close to me right now because I don't know if mm. if you've heard that we're. We're kind of winding down the weekly radio show that is, ah, which is how I'm being started two uh-huh. decades. And wow, that's huge. It is huge. and and I think without having all the vocabulary and all the all the yes. words and the, and the philosophy that you've just laid out, I, I, I know it's just time, right? And it's that's it's right. it's an ending and it's a beginning. It's vitality. It's vitality. Vitality And like what you're speaking to is the
2: life force, right? Mm -hmm. Everything dies, but that's kind of (laughs) good. You know, like it's, it makes for a very rich world, like all the richness, all that fecundity, all that beautiful miracle of life. Mm -hmm. It happens because we live in cycles
1: not yeah. perpetuity. And as you say, right? compost something else, right? Other yes. seeds, other yes. seeds are then, yes. have their moment, have their time. Exactly, uh-huh. exactly. And it's trying to
2: hold on to stuff and not let it die that actually puts us in precarious positions, yeah. even for our species. This is actually one of our biggest issues right now is we're so scared of death. Yeah. And... So we think about how do we make people live forever and how do we look young forever and do all this stuff instead of being like, oh no, how do I get good at dying? You know, how do I get to where I'll be at peace when my time comes? Because there's other generations that need to survive off of the resources of this Mm -hmm. place. (laughs) You know, it's in the design.
1: to Tippett, and this is on being today with emergent strategist adrian murray brown just drawing on what you were just saying uh i mean emergence is change right someplace you said emergence is our yes. inheritance as a part of the universe it is how we change and emergence um doesn't wait for us to be ready for change, Mm -hmm. and we're really in an accelerated (laughs) moment of that right now. Mm -hmm. But as you know, change is really hard for human beings, right? It's hard Mm -hmm. for us at a creaturely level, and also we all individually handle it in different ways at different times. And so I, you know, I wanted to talk about, I feel like this wisdom is so powerfully embedded in the way you think and the way you're working and one of those for me is the way you use the word fractal (laughs) (laughs) you said that you first thought about fractals when you were so just to to kind of bring home again (laughs) that this is all about what happens on the ground um you were doing electoral organizing in 2004 is that right yeah
2: so i was doing electoral organizing in 2004 um, and 2003-2004 right where gearing up it's post 9-11 it's like we're going to war with Iraq and Afghanistan and we're like we got to get Bush out of office you know so we're doing all this organizing and it clicked for me in a way that I couldn't you know it's one of those things you see it and you can't unsee it that I was like oh we are trying to just change the top layer of this very layered cake (laughs) this very layered process this system of governance we think that if we just win the presidency, that then we'll be able to change the world. And it clicked for me that it's like, actually it's a fractal system and it's layer on top of layer on top of layer. And if none of us are practicing democracy anywhere, it's not gonna just suddenly work at the top layer. (laughs) And I got it. And then I, I realized, so something about smallness, I was able to gain respect for because I was like every single large system or structure or network or political protocol, all of it is made up of small things of humans either having or not having necessary conversations and humans being willing to stand up for what is right and stand up against what is wrong. It's all these small activities that we need to get great at if we want to actually have anything that would be a real democracy.
1: Um, this language of fractal comes from um, mathematics, right? Originally,
2: yeah. And you know, the first thing that I was exposed to was actually fractals. Uh, the the <laughs> Fibonacci, like the mm-hmm. the sequence, is basically like mm-hmm. how something repeats at scale, no matter how small it gets and no matter how large it is. And it's these particular patterns in the universe. And I felt so naughty when I started using fractal. you know, as someone who's (laughs) like, I barely understand math, but so far my, my friends who are in the math and science world have not like completely doused me (laughs) in shame. So I feel like I'm, I'm okay, but you know, sometimes I'll use the language of fractals. Sometimes I'll just point to actual examples. So I'll be like, look at a head of broccoli, look at a fern, look at the Delta around new Orleans. And then like, look at how these veins and artery systems move through your system and your mm-hmm. heart and your lungs. Mm-hmm. Um, look at the spiral shapes on your fingertips and then look at the shape of galaxies. And in that way we can begin to see like, there are no isolated patterns. You know, the universe it has some favorites and they repeat and they repeat at every scale. Mm. And then people are like, Oh, <laughs> you know, like I'm like, yes, like your body is a whole water system there's all these different formations that are all how to how to move water and we're one of them and I find it very comforting you know to to find myself in one of those patterns
1: and that that imagery is so stunning and it provides exactly the contrast to to this worldview that yeah that you and I were raised in that came into the 21st century that Right. Mm-hmm. That you could elect one person at the top. Yes. <laughs> and that would change everything. And that would change everything. That would change everything. It was exactly. never true, but it was no. perhaps it felt a little more true in a more homogeneous society.
2: Yeah. And I also think it's like, again, in the imagination, if you are someone who would benefit from that power system, right, then mm-hmm. it really behooves you to imagine the world is that way. Yeah, that works. <laughs> you know, Yeah, it's like, but I'm just, you know, I, from a very young age, was like, oh, but I'm just as smart as these white men in my classes, and and yet the same opportunities are not available to me. Can someone help me understand that? Yeah. I, I need a logic because <laughs> it's not adding and, up. And there is no logic. And there's no logic to yeah. it, right? And often when there's no logic, then that's when you know you're in someone's dream.
1: Oh. You know, this whole way of seeing, this whole way of imagining is emergent in our world right now, and there's struggle around it. There are different ways of seeing, but I think perhaps more definingly, the conditions aren't all there, right? That's right. So, you know, one of the things um, that you also talk about is how, like, there is going to be important conflict and contradiction. Yeah. That is part of the process of ending cycles of harm. Yeah. And so one of the things we also have to be working on, and this goes back to our human condition. Yeah. Um, I mean, here's some ways you've talked about it. How, you know, how do we fight fair? How do we struggle in principled ways? That's how right. do we practice accountability beyond punishment with each other? And there's all kinds. There are all kinds of friction points, right? But that's one of that's them. That's right. Well, and, you know,
2: One of my teachers around this is um, a writer and a thinker named Miriam Kaba, and she's an exquisite human being, exquisite thinker. And one of the things that she often reminds me of, because like, I think what would be so comforting to us is if we could be like, we're going to end the prison system and automatically move to a very well-organized, centralized Mm -hmm. system where like, you know, Instead of everyone going to prison, like you just go straight to a mediator and it's all handled. Right. And she's like, it won't be like a huge, overarching, centralized system. Transformative justice will be a lot of us learning the skills to hold conflict within our communities, within our families, um, within our schools and institutions. We're learning ourselves to hold it in different ways. But also, I always love to point out that this is some of the most ancient technology also right and um, if we listen to indigenous communities around ways that they have resolved conflict over you know thousands and thousands and thousands of years a lot of it is the same practices and they're still practicing them right so it's being in a circle it's listening it's being able to let one person speak at a time it's identifying what are the consequences right not the punishments but what are the reasonable consequences the boundaries you know how, how do we make this right yeah what does that actually look like and relinquishing the idea that you know we'll all end up as best friends at the end or whatever right, right. the kind right. of fairy tale disney version of conflict mediation instead being with what is the human condition it says it might be hard you might never get back to that but you can get to a just place hmm. you can get to a just place you can get to a place where You're not walking around carrying the anger that that's not the primary experience you're having. You know, it's like I was hurt, and now I've been able to move forward, and and here's what moving forward looks like, and I was able to define some of that for myself.
1: After a short break, more with Adrienne Marie Brown. And we are in emergence here at OnBeing, as you know, in learning mode, listening to the world and to our listeners. I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to visit onbeing.org slash survey and answer a few questions that will help us know who you are and how OnBeing can accompany you in the time ahead. Please share this invitation with other OnBeing listeners in your life as well. Again, that's onbeing.org slash survey. And thank you.
0: On Being with Krista Tippett is supported in part by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the latest discoveries in the science of hope and optimism, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, I'm with Adrian Marie Brown, a philosopher, organizer, and social creative whose work and words are driving emergent vision and strategies in our world of change. In 2020, she published a small tract that unleashed a large conversation beneath our surface of polarized fracture. It's called We Will Not Cancel Us. I just want to read a beautiful some beautiful sentences you wrote so mm. so powerful and I'm and I think this is in we will not cancel us um, okay. we are brilliant at survival but brutal at it we tend to slip out of togetherness the way we slip out of the womb bloody and messy and surprised to be alone and clever able to learn with our whole bodies the way of this world and the context of that was talking about how your default position is wonder, and (laughs) you have to carry around a lot of disappointment and frustration (laughs) and critique with humanity, and and that you also, that that is especially true when you look at um, social justice movements, um, where you expect so much, right, and desire so much, (laughs) and you're being honest, and you're actually saying that from a place of love, right? and yeah, of and yeah. of high, brilliant expectations. and mm. and so countercultural <laughs> mm-hmm, in this mm-hmm. context, in which to call for accountability, to express honest critique, even to kind of acknowledge imperfection is leapt on. As mm-hmm. failure, yeah. So you really walked into a brave and hazardous space. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, Krista. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know,
2: I um, it's. I always think about how that I had been away on sabbatical, um, and the pandemic was unfolding, and I returned from sabbatical, and there was like. Everyone was canceling each other is what it felt like. Um, I had been away from social media for not even that long. And so I know this was happening before I stepped away, but I was normalized to it because I was in it every day. And then when I stepped away and came back, I was like, oh, my goodness, (laughs) like this is all we're doing on the Internet now. Um, You know, it just felt like it just felt like so intense and it didn't feel It didn't feel like what we're supposed to be up to. You know, like I felt like, can we do it a different way? Can we do it with love? And can we be honest, at least honest, that there's not love in the way we're doing it now? Right. Because I think that was also what was hurting my heart, was people being like, yeah, we just have to love each other. (laughs) And then we're doing the most awful, awful dismissals and disposals of each other. Mm -hmm. And because of my facilitation background, I was also catching some of those disposals, like... Um, people would show up and just be like, hey, you probably saw this, but I just got canceled. <laughs> and I, almost yeah. always, I was like, I didn't even see it. Like, I can't even keep up with right.
1: you all of it. it. So yeah. I was like, I had
2: no idea, but yeah. this person was devastated and, mm-hmm. and sometimes suicidal. Yeah. Like, it was having an impact. And I, I want us to at least not pretend like it's not having an impact, at least that, you know? Mm. Um, let's take responsibility. And then the other pattern I noticed was often it was people who were fairly young in movement themselves or fairly young inside of, you know, whatever their political analysis was, you know, I'm like, I can kind of remember before you thought that, you know, I can remember when you might've made the same mistake. Right. And you know, my heart just was like, do y'all, do y'all remember that like everyone was transphobic last week? Like Mm -hmm. all of y'all were saying this, this horrific stuff. And like, we need to unlearn this like together. We need to unlearn it. And I think it felt like people were starting to skip the step of actually decolonizing and unlearning, um, these oppressive systems and just being like, I'll just punish anyone who missteps and that'll be how I do my action. And it's almost like that's people's activism now. And we're depressed. We're losing leaders left and right. Um, because people are making mistakes and now there's no room for making mistakes. So it just felt like a total crisis to me that needed, needed a different kind of attention. And because I had been away on sabbatical, I think I was brave enough (laughs) to do it,
1: um, in that moment. Okay. Do you have, um, we will not cancel us. Do you have the little book by you? So on page 58, um, what you've been talking about on the previous page is kind of the harm that is created. Uh Um, and i feel like this page is such an acute analysis of of what cancel culture and i mean all around right on across the spectrum what it yeah. says about our culture mm. which is kind of the opposite of i mean honoring emergence right mm-hmm. so would you just read that you know but one layer under yeah. that what i hear is we
2: cannot change we do not believe we can create compelling pathways from being harm doers to being healed and to growing. We do not believe we can hold the complexity of a gray situation. We do not believe in our own complexity. We do not believe we can navigate conflict and struggle in principled ways. We can only handle binary thinking: good bad, innocent guilty, angel abuser, black white, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Cancer attacks one part of the body at a time. I've seen it. Oh, it's in the throat. Now it's in the lungs. Now it's in the bones. When we engage in knee-jerk call-outs as a conflict resolution device or issue instant consequences with no process, we become a cancer unto ourselves, unto movements and communities. We become the toxicity we long to heal. We become a tool of harm, when we were trying to be, and I think meant to be, a balm. Oh, unthinkable thoughts. Now that I have thought you, it becomes clear to me that all of you are rooted in a singular longing. I want us to live. I want us to want to live in this world, in this time, together. What's it like to read that back to yourself? You know, (laughs) I mean... I deeply believe it. Yeah. Um, like, I really want us to live. And I also, I feel less lonely now. When I was writing this, I felt very alone. <laughs> you know, like, uh-huh. I was just like, um, I'm scared for us and for movement spaces. Like, I want us to hold each other as so precious. And when I was writing it, that was in me, thrumming through me, you know, such a loud longing but I feel so much less alone now than I did when this came out. Um, cause it came out and I've had so many people like, Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, just like, yes, now I see what you mean. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people are, have been called out in the time since this book came out who have reached out to me and been like, I didn't know <laughs> until yeah. it happened to me. Um, so yeah, that's that's the main thing that strikes me now is I feel like a lot a lot more people are like, Oh, it's it's part of the political toxicity of the moment. Yeah. That we've been all yeah. tricked into participating in.
1: It's also part of our distressed nervous systems, right? Exactly. We have had bad impulse control for kind of understandable reasons. Oh my gosh. But then yes. but then the internet was just a terrible platform for letting that loose. Yeah. Um get you know again, kind of circling back it is a time of unstoppable change, and change is so unsettling and different kinds of people are on the losing end of this change or fear that they are, and fear has right fear is also fear fear is the greatest example of the power of imagination because even a perceived threat right lands right. with it's the mostly power of threat mostly and it's imagined so. <laughs> I appreciate um, a piece that you wrote. Um, I think this is on your blog, a word for white people in two parts. Mm-hmm. This, mm-hmm. I appreciate this sentence so much, um, which is just humanizing this. Supremacy is our ongoing pandemic. It partners with every other sickness to tear us from life or from lives worth living. I mean, to me, that kind of you're saying let's move towards lives worth living. Right. Life's worth I living. really love that. At the, mm-hmm. at the beginning of that blog post, you put a word for white people in two parts. Part one: What a time to be alive, which is true, <laughs> and which is another way to frame yes. it, right? And I feel like we should almost put that sentence at the beginning of so many of our conversations, right? What it's a time easy. to be alive that we are in this total paradigm shift, right? And exactly. that we are we are tasked with standing before these existential, potentially transformative junctures for our species.
2: Exactly. I mean, this is to me the most exciting thing right now, right? It's like we are aware if we wake up. We are in a place where we can create so much history and so much change. Yeah. Everything is falling apart, but also new things are possible. And Octavia said that there's nothing new under the sun, but there are new suns. We're in a time <laughs> okay. of new suns.
1: Right. Right.
2: We're in a time of new suns. Like we have no idea what we could be, but everything that we have been is falling apart. Mhm. So it's time to change, and we can be mindful about that. That's exciting.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's buckle your seatbelt exciting, right? Yes.
2: (laughs) It's like, this is we are the action heroes. You know, I always say that for organizers, but I'm like, really, to be a human, once you wake up and recognize, like, oh, I can shape everything, I don't have to be a victim of someone else's vision for my subjugation. I actually get to be a powerhouse in the story of my own life and my people's lives. Oh, that's a different invitation. I'd much rather live in that scenario. And so I do.
1: <laughs> I'm Krista Tippett and this is On Being, today with emergent strategist Adrian Murray Brown. I've seen you um, talk about unthinkable thoughts and favorite questions, right? And and yes. it's coming out of presence, right? Not just to, to what's going on inside your head, but to what you see happening around you, what you're part of, and also always other teachers. I'm curious, like, you know, sometimes I ask people at the end of an interview about what is making you despair and... And what is giving you hope right now today? And I kind of feel like for you, the question is, what is your unthinkable thought? And what is your favorite generative question today? <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. um, well, I my unthinkable thought lately has been, will I be okay if humans don't continue? For such a long time, I've been really driven by the idea that we have to continue like we simply must we're so miraculous and incredible <laughs> um but lately yeah my unthinkable thought has been like and you know but we might not so far we're not making the kind of decisions that would lead to continuation and what does that mean and how do I still live a really meaningful life hmm. and you know fight till the end because I do feel like that you know I, I'm like it is miraculous enough to that I want to give it my whole life effort but also can I also be at peace with what is which might be that we're not that we're not I willing can... to change yeah. yeah so that's the unthinkable thought and it's unthinkable because it's so it really brings up so much grief for me you yeah. know like I really love life hmm. um and then the question, which is actually from one of my teachers, Grace Lee Boggs, that she would always ask when we showed up to sit down and talk with her is what time is it on the clock of the world? And I like this question. It always makes me kind of deconstruct time when I, mm. when I, you know, I'm like, oh, we're in these like looping patterns actually. And we're in a pattern that feels familiar in these ways and new in these other ways. Mm. Um So like, we're in this interesting moment in black movement, where we came through this first massive wave of of Black Lives Matter and lots of black organizing happening. And there's a moment right now that's really tense and intense. And it feels like, you know, a lot of internal tension coming out into the light. But for me, this is also a moment of deep learning, And what we've never had before are the tools of communication and Uh mediation. And there's just so many people who are calling each other and being like, I don't want to see us struggle in this way. You so know? the
1: tension feels like a time loop. The tension feels not super new. time loop.
2: It's super familiar. Every yeah. Every time any movement, per, you know, so it's like not just true for black movement, but like any movement that starts to get national acclaim and attention, yeah. you know, there's going to then yeah, be that then backlash yeah. that happens within of like,
1: well, who are you to, mm-hmm. you know, who and are you? And also the growing right. pains, right, within the human drama, right? The, the growing pains totally. of something that grows. So So, that's the
2: that's the loop, right? Mm -hmm. But then the different tools that we have this time around. First of all, is so many more people are paying attention to Black movement. Period. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think the the vast majority of them are not getting caught up in that sort of movement internal stuff. I think the vast majority are just like, okay, Black Lives Matter. (laughs) You know, like so I need to orient around that. And I think there's so much beautiful work coming out of the movement for black lives and southerners on new ground and the catalyst project and surge for white folks and allies and it's just a different time of talking about racial justice and thinking about racial justice that is full of complexity there's so many people asking the questions of what does blackness even mean like can we interrogate this in a new way and How do we keep it intersectional? How do we bring in all aspects of ourselves? So I'm finding it a very exciting time, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? But it's also a fraught time. And we're able to look at it historically more. You know, when I talked, uh, I got to be in a conversation with Angela Davis and you know.
0: I just had to stop now. I am so full. This is such a challenging conversation. I was just writing down thoughts and emotions. And the first thing that um, I felt was it was fresh, it was different, but it was also challenging. Adrienne puts words together in a new and unusual way. The question she asked, I love this, what time is it on the clock of the world? And this statement, failure is not when something ends. Sometimes it's that time and that's vitality. One of the mistakes we make is we keep living in cycles, not in perpetuity. She asked are actually made the expression, what a time to be alive. I liked her expressions and thoughts around change. Now we're in a time of unstoppable change. and emergence is change. And she's known as an emergent strategist. But she parked for a moment on cancel culture. And she's saying, we're living in a time of dismissal and disposal. People are feeling depressed and we're losing leaders as a result. It's like we feel like there's no room for people to make mistakes. Her question is, can we do it a different way? Can we do it with love? Can we hold on to each other as precious? Well, in many ways, it looks like what's happening now is falling apart. And yet, what's happening now makes everything possible. So I suggest we think of it in a positive light and ask the question, what a time to be alive. We like to leave a little soul food on the table for any one of you who just may be feeling tired, left out, wondering if this is all there is. In our last conversation, we were just listening to embodies the fact that there are many people feeling just like that. So I decided that I would share a quote from Adrian's blog called Full Moon in Aquarius. This is kind of fun. It's an exercise. Listen carefully. Fall in love with the face in the mirror. Watch it do new things. Lose the mirror. Fall in love with the feeling of the new feeling on your face. Call it a small freedom. Claim a a moment unperformed. Meet your own eyes in another's space. Grasp control and relinquish it. A new story is taking over you and all of us at the same moment. Maybe You are the letter R in a sentence that wants to incite a revolution but desperately needs respite. And you can do both. Everything in between is a different letter to conjure up the breath through mouth flesh, a different way of being in the world, a different miracle. Now catch your eye again and relinquish solitude feel how many bacteria and cells and memories and ideas are collaborating for this exhale this insert your name write a story of satisfaction and swoon and delight in abundance and when you grieve let it only be for the hours spent lost from yourself but don't give up the lessons you could have only learned in that wilderness. Like when you see the moon this full. How? You've been listening to Frankly Speaking with Tyra G on www.radiofairfax.org to be heard weekly every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. locally, nationally, and internationally. Your seat at the table is guaranteed. So until next time, I want you to remember, no matter who you are, where you are, or what you're doing, you are stronger than you feel. You are smarter than you think. You're more beautiful than you know. And more love than you can ever imagine. Treat yourself like someone you love. Until next time, remember, I'm here and I'm listening.